You're listening to the Today in Manufacturing podcast. Hi, I'm David Manti, and welcome to a new episode of the Today in Manufacturing podcast. With me this week are Jeff Ranke and Anna Wells. We each have more than 15 years of experience covering the manufacturing industry. Every week, we take the five most popular stories and discuss the implications they have on the industry going forward. Before we get started, please make sure to like, share, and subscribe to the podcast. You can also help us out a lot by leaving the podcast a positive review on whatever platform you use. Finally, if you want to email the podcast, you can reach any of us at Jeff, David, or Anna at IEN.com with email the podcast in the subject line. We're also live every Friday, so if you want to make sure you catch us, you can subscribe to us on YouTube to make sure you get the notification, and that's IEN Magazine on YouTube. Anna, how are we doing this week? Doing fine. How are you? I am pleasant. I'm pleasant. We're going into a holiday weekend, right? It's easy, right, Jeff? Pleasant. Pleasant. It's an interesting choice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Good to hear. Because I was good, then a little bad. But now I'm, you know, just feeling it. All but right. don't, yeah. don't you think right. that it would be up to Jeff and I to decide if you were pleasant? No, you guys definitely, it's more of it's more of a positive than negative most times. <laughs> I've just never heard anybody describe how they're feeling is pleasant. I'm feeling pleasant. Behavior is usually pleasant. You know, the temperature's nice in here. We cleaned up all the glass from the lights I accidentally shattered earlier. Actually, that's not true. We have a broken vacuum in the office, apparently, and there's just a bunch of mercury dust over there. So don't inhale a lot today, Oh, guys. thanks for the <laughs> heads up now. <laughs> well, before we get started, we have a word from our sponsor. Oil Eater's household cleaners, industrial cleaners, and industrial equipment are specifically designed to replace dangerous solvents and are used throughout the world. Our safe water-based formula dissolves grease and grime for almost any surface and leaves a fresh, non-chemical scent. Our ultra-concentrated formulas are perfect for light, medium, or heavy cleaning and can be used on shop floors, in parts washers, to clean equipment, and more. VOC compliant, Oil Eater will do an excellent job in a multitude of applications, safely and cost effectively, while reducing your chemical usage. Safe for the user, safe for the surfaces being cleaned, and safe for the environment. For more information, visit oileater.com or call 800 528 0334. And we're back. And before we get started, just remember that you can click that link below for a free sample of Oil Eater for all. Today in Manufacturing podcast listeners, viewers, fans, even the ones that don't like us, you get it if we can. There you go. Yeah. All right. Our first story this week. Company fined after production manager dies in thermoforming machine. On November 17th, 2021, a production manager was clearing plastic parts stuck in a thermoforming machine at Encore Plastics in Cambridge, Ohio, when he became trapped. The machine's conveyor cycled automatically and the employee was fatally crushed. An OSHA investigation into the facility, which manufactures plastic buckets, lids, and paint trays, found that the company could have prevented the tragedy. According to OSHA, employees continued to perform service and maintenance after knowing that machine components continued to move after opening the machine door. Two similar incidents occurred on the same machine one on the day of the fatal accident and another two days prior. In the two prior incidents, workers barely escaped injury. The company faces $291,000 in proposed OSHA penalties for violations. And Jeff, what really stuck with me, stuck in my craw, was the two prior incidents in this one. Yeah, and you know, my first impression when I see these repeat incidents, you think about the culture of the company and what's going on. IPL, which is the parent company of this parent, yeah, parent company of this manufacturing facility, um, it's a $600 million company. It's a huge, it's a huge enterprise, 2,000 employees, 20 f- facilities, I think, in like five different countries. So the resources are there is my point. Mm-hmm. In a lot of these instances, you kind of wonder about that when you see these repeat issues. I think there's also a perfect storm here when you look at the products they're putting out. We've seen so many issues when it comes to food and supply chains. So you can appreciate the pressure that they were under to get these products out the door and serve their customers. Mm-hmm. Just for a little background, food packaging, it's a 300 billion dollar market right now, it's going to go up by about 5% annually over the next five years. Mm-hmm. So there's there's a huge demand for it and there's a lot of growth for it. So you can appreciate the pressure. And I can also say it's easy for me to stand here and say, hey, slow down guys and be safe. Mm-hmm. But that's what you have to do here. And to me, this seems like a very centralized issue. There was something in this facility, whether it was the culture, the supervisors, the structure, the maintenance structure, whatever it is, there was something wrong here. Mm-hmm. And somebody needs to step up and say, hey, guys, 
good grief. We got away with this twice yeah. before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And now something tragic happens. <clears throat> so you don't want to diminish that, but you have to focus not just on that result because they're going to pay this fine. Again, it's a $600 million company. They're going to, they've got $290,000 in fines coming right now. You know, they're going to negotiate. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. going to be less down. than that when they actually pay it. And that's what the focus is going to be on. Yeah. We started at 290 and we got to knock down to this so we can move forward now. You can't do that. Yeah. And again, it really feels like a centralized issue within this one facility within this very large company. Well, and I hope part of the negotiation, because part of the negotiations with OSHA is remedying the problem so that way it doesn't happen going forward. Sometimes it's training, but maybe in this case, it means getting the proper lockout, tagout on uh, this machine and others in the facility to prevent incidents like this going forward. Uh, Anna, what were your thoughts on what happened at Encore Plastics? Yeah, I, you know, Jeff mentioned this and I'll just take it a step further. This is a culture problem, most certainly. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we've all had a million jobs over the years. And I think you kind of know what's expected of you. Like when you work for someone who's an absolute stickler for health and safety protocols, there's this intuitive response to this type of situation, which is shut it down and figure it out before something terrible happens. Right. Mm -hmm. When you have someone in charge that makes it clear in their words or actions that uptime is to be valued above anything else. And I think we've all had those experiences, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Then you get this type of behavior, you know, and I think businesses need to think carefully about the ways that they may be making this point. Um, Not so much in their words, but just how that company operates. For example, a business who enables or tacitly encourages people to come to work when they're sick or to not take their vacation time or to work long hours despite exhaustion. Mm -hmm. To do five different jobs at once, which we know is happening a lot in manufacturing. People talk about wearing multiple hats like that can be problematic when it gets to the point where things are being overlooked or you're sending this message to your staff. That is, we value production uptime above anything yeah, else. Above right. Your safety, yeah. yeah. So they may not come out and say it, but they're creating that expectation. They're creating that environment. And it might encourage someone to slap a bandaid on something and keep going, or let's just get through this run, get through the shift. We'll look at it later in a case like this, like it, it's too little too late. Mm-hmm. Well, the near misses, that's what, what got me because they could have slapped a bandaid on it and at least said, don't do that anymore. You know, I mean, uh, after one close call, that's enough to just shut it down until you have it remedied. After two, you're just dancing with, you know, uh, yeah. something bad happening. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, like, it's just that's the part that really, uh, really got got to me. Just that, uh, you know, and every it seemed like a lot of people saw these near misses. It was common knowledge. So I just wonder what was the motivating factor. Like what? Oh, well, we didn't we made it out the first two times. Right. Yeah. Um, so OSHA area director Larry Johnson said the company ignored reports of malfunctioning equipment and near misses. And that's just I mean. Just very plain stated there. Well, and it's really hard to figure, too, because when you look out at lockout, tagout, and machine guarding technologies, these are not expensive fixes. Yeah. Especially even in comparison, I mean, obviously to a person's life, mm-hmm. but even the fines. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. what it would cost to fix them Oh yeah, as opposed to deal with the fines? Well, that's uh, one, uh, one person on the website, a uh, reader who goes by Rabble. His comments just, I thought, put it perfectly. This is so insane. We provide very low-priced online training and lockout takeout aimed at all employees. It's not rocket science, but it is one of our least accessed courses. It seems that safety is very low on the list for way too many companies. And that kind of just really stuck out because that's a person that has firsthand knowledge of what people are looking for when it comes to training, and they're just not seeking it out. Well, we struggle with this when we talk about content. Mm -hmm. I mean, safety is so important, but becomes white noise in the background when you try to talk about this, not the same things even all the Mm -hmm. time, just as a general subject. Yeah, completely agreed. Um, And during the investigation at Encore, OSHA actually opened a second, another investigation after a complaint of safety hazards at its warehouse. At the warehouse, investigators found that the company had failed to train workers on safe operation of forklifts. And it was just... During the investigation, they opened another investigation. So that, I mean, to your guys' yeah. point about it being a culture problem, mm-hmm. I think that's very apparent. All right. Things need to change. Our next most popular story this week, union leaders blast GM for remote work double standard. General Motors last year unveiled Work Appropriately, a program that allowed white collar workers to work from home permanently. Now, GM is looking to expand the program to some salaried factory employees. The idea is to allow working from home 
when appropriate, like for administrative tasks, training, online learning, or shift assignments. However, roles within, quote, work location, roles without work location flexibility will be excluded, which includes workers in engineering, vehicle design, vehicle testing and development, as well as assembly line and skilled trades in manufacturing. Understandably, workers on GM production lines are upset. One in particular said, would I like to do that? Hell yeah, bring 400 cars to me and I'll work on them in my backyard. Now, the UAW is calling the policy a double standard. And one official from the UAW said, if the people who build trucks can't work from home, nobody should work from home. Anna, obviously, everything has been quick changing since COVID and the pandemic. And so I understand, you know, people were able to deal with it when we were in the heat of it, right? But now that things have changed permanently, you know, people are starting to gripe about what's fair and what's not fair. Yeah. And, you know, work from home, remote work, this is all becoming sort of new normal stuff. Mm -hmm. And I think one thing it brings to the forefront, this issue that we're not really talking about is how much pressure uh, this worker demand for flexibility is applying to industries that cannot support that or respond to it. Right. Like everyone's got a recruitment and a retention problem right now. If you look at manufacturing, you look at adjacent industries that are unquestionably on-site work, you Mm -hmm. know, skilled trades, warehouse, stuff like that, bartending, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, when the whole country decided that work from home and flexibility all the time was what they desired, it leaves a lot of industries kind of a step behind in terms of their ability to, I don't know, have a competitive offer Mm -hmm. to get some of this talent. So that's a challenge, obviously, to start. Um, As this line worker said, and you quoted him, you know, bring me the 400 cars, like, yeah, you know, it's clearly rhetoric, but he's bringing attention to the fact that this is not an option (laughs) for them. And, you know, you're right. It is causing some issues that said, I don't believe that we should be creating this sort of race to the bottom in response to this, like for this union rep to say that nobody in auto should be able to work from home. If, if everybody can't like, that's absurd to me. I mean, there are many benefits to businesses who can manage a remote team effectively, including reduced onsite costs, fewer buildings, less energy use, not to mention like people get time back. So they're, you know, maybe more satisfied with their career, you know, less turnover. They're not driving, you know, reduces commuter time on the highways, mm-hmm. emissions, everything. There's so many like ripple effects of this. Um, and so you, I just think you can't begrudge companies from wanting to pursue this. Workers want it. Companies want it. You know, I unfortunately, it's going to continue to challenge manufacturers from a recruiting standpoint and retention standpoint, because, yeah, they can't offer production line workers to work from home. It's just it's never going to happen. So either people are going to want to do it or not. But there's no way that we can say no one is permitted to have this option. I just don't think that that's realistic or fair. Another thing that it's going to hurt podcast download numbers, less people in cars, less podcasts. It's just so you're anti this, huh? Anti working, yeah. Um, Double standard, well, says the, David Manti. Well, uh, the other thing, and we talk about it a lot, is you got to bring you got to bring more benefits if they have to stay at the facility. Bring more benefits to the facility. Agreed. You mm-hmm. know, I mean, I know that it sounds contrite to talk about uh, how we have free snacks, or some companies have free daycare. You know, mm-hmm. uh, bring some of those things in house, so that way it's easier. And, you know, bring the benefits to the employees that have to stay at the office. And that's what the UAW should be focused on here. Yeah. This makes them look, I'm sorry, really foolish. Yeah. I mean, when you see this headline and you're saying this is what the union leaders are focused on right now, we've got issues with people not being able to afford health insurance. We've mm-hmm. got issues with getting and keeping the right people on site producing a high quality product. And you're worried about working from home, double standards. This is ridiculous. Yeah. If you decide that your career path is going to be an assembly or automotive production on a plant floor in whatever industry it is, there's a general understanding that you're going to say, this is where I need to be to get this done. Mm -hmm. Okay. We've got two guys back there that during the pandemic were in this office almost every single day. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's the nature of the beast. They knew what they signed up for. And is there a double standard? It's not a double standard if that's just the standard. Mm -hmm. That's what the expectation is. Well, there's two standards. That's why it's a double standard. But it's not unequal. (laughs) It's it's what it is. Everybody works according to what what the expectation is for their job. Right, right. So I just think this makes the UAW look sort of 
foolish. Mm-hmm. And it lends a lot of credibility to a lot of those new automotive facilities going down, going up in the southeastern part of the country. One of the biggest lures is they're non-union shops. Yeah. That's why a lot of those automakers are going down there and growing facilities down there. Yeah. Adding more jobs to it. Uh, we just saw um, Oklahoma land, uh, uh, trying to land a couple. We saw Georgia land two, potentially two huge automotive factories. Mm-hmm. Those aren't going to be union jobs. Yeah. I, I think the, the other thing, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. The other point is, again, I would agree. That's where the UAW's focus should be is on benefits and doing more for their workforce as opposed to something like this. The other thing is potentially when you do have more people working from home, that can cut some of your overhead costs, some of your operating costs, which yeah. can help your company just be more financially healthy. Exactly. Yeah. Which yeah. benefits everyone in the company, especially when you're in an ultra competitive situation like automotive. Or it lets the company take record profits. Yeah. <laughs> which so, is a benefit to everyone. Yeah. Uh, Should I, be. I, that was one of my big points is let's be honest. This is not about anything other than cost cutting. You know, it is uh, because... I think that it does hurt morale. And I do think that it is a double standard because when it was, it's already a double standard when you're working in a factory and there's people working in the office because you walk in past the office and you know the conditions you work in every day and the conditions they work in every day. And no matter what, even though it's what you signed up for, you're already thinking that. And then as soon as they're given more benefits that are not extended to other employees, that's just going to you know, so more division, I believe. And uh, with the rank and file. And so I think some of these things, you know, it kind of made me think of grade school. You remember grade school? Mm -hmm. If you brought something in, you had to bring it in for everyone. Yeah. And if everyone doesn't get it, there are going to be some people that are angry about it. And so I get it. Like, uh, but I think there are other ways that they could either be completely uh, blunt about it and just say, hey, this is a cost cutting measure. We're going to save the company money. And that's going to be extended as a benefit to the people who have to be on the factory floor. You know, you got to make it so it is seen as a positive for everybody. Whereas now there are workers who are saying, you get this. I got nothing else. That's unfair. But that's, yeah, see, I, I don't follow that mindset. I understand what you're saying. Yeah. I, I just, I disagree with it because most of those folks on the plant floor, they don't want those jobs that are going on in the office. That's not the career path they would want. I, I don't so, think so. I think like having been on the factory floor, like it maybe not be, that might not be the career that's yours. That's your path, but you still see it as them being treated differently. So, I mean, you can see someone being treated differently and still know, like, I don't want that job, but like, they're still getting a, a benefit that I'm not getting. Okay, but you don't know the hours they're working. They don't have a defined schedule. They have yeah. to be there until things get done. You yeah. don't know what their travel schedule is like. You don't know what any of the other demands are there. I've been on both sides of that too. Working on the factory floor made me realize I don't want to work on the factory floor. Yeah. Okay? No. But I didn't see it as something as being unfair. It's, you want to go this way? Great. Mm-hmm. I'm going this way. Yeah. I just, I mean, I just don't think a lot of people see it that way. I, I mean, which is, it would be great. It would be great if they did. But I mean, it would also be great if like during lunch, they were just like, you know what I was thinking? I bet you do a lot of work from home. What is your travel schedule like putting in a lot of extra hours? But just hours? because they're not thinking about those things doesn't mean they're automatically right or deserve I, some sort of, you know. I'm, no, I'm, that's why the heart of everything is communication. Like, uh, you know, if you are honest about it being cost cutting, if you're honest about like, hey, they're working from home, but they're actually doing like 60 hour weeks, you know, and they're working at odd hours. It's all about like uh, there being more information out there rather than they're getting this. You're not. They don't want to um, they don't want to talk about the cost cutting or the, you know, like because yeah. they want to couch it as a benefit, like yeah. that they're offering this as a benefit. Right. GM would like never want it to look like they are doing it to save money. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing that it made me think of is that, you know, I've been talking to more and more people that who, who are going back into the office and seeing the positive benefit of being in the office among coworkers, and now it's it's just still really weird. I mean, we came back full time into the office pretty early comparatively. Last summer, like yeah. Like last summer. <clears throat> and uh, you know, talking to some people, uh, some guys on the softball team, you know, they have huge offices and they're like one of four people that are mm-hmm. in the office. And it's just a weird culture right now. And I think there is a benefit to having everyone in the office. I honestly do. But that's as a person who thrives in an environment with people, not just working from home. All right. Well, let's move on to our next most popular story. U.S. train with deadliest record to get faster. 
The Brightline, America's first privately owned commuter train, has been involved in 68 fatalities in just four and a half years of operation. This makes Brightline the deadliest train line in America, with a death occurring every 37,000 miles traveled. For comparison, San Francisco's Caltrain logs one death every 105,000 miles, nearly three times as much. Experts have been blaming the increase in fatalities related to Brightline crashes to a combination of factors that result in more cars colliding with the train. They say the high rate of speed combined with tracks in dense urban areas are leading to challenges. Brightline believes many of the crashes with vehicles are intentional acts of drivers taking their own lives, but recent reports say poor infrastructure is more likely to blame. Brightline initially declined to add additional recommended safety measures, including sealed gates and increased signage at crossings, but then they added them in a second phase of the train's development. Anna, now Brightline is getting faster and critics are raising questions over safety. I believe rightfully so. Yeah, they're um, they're trying to go faster and they're also adding some capacity. So they're adding some new destinations. Um you know, Brightline something we've covered since it launched in 2018 because mm-hmm. watching this in real time, the sort of alarming safety incident uh, frequency was was um, pretty bothersome and scary to see how that, you know, that has continued. Uh, clearly, the train is seems to be interacting with street level traffic a little too frequently. Mm -hmm. Um, But the Florida bulldog also explored what it said, what it said were suicide experts calling suicide, suicide by train, a growing problem, Mm -hmm. um, which I did not realize. So Brightline may have a point here though. You wonder why it seems to be happening at a much more frequent rate in Florida versus elsewhere, (laughs) which leads me to believe that that conclusion on behalf of Brightline is maybe conveniently incomplete mm-hmm. um, there's probably some more factors as well as this route system that people are highlighting that are playing a big role but either way i think they need to figure some things out um, it sounds like they've come around on some of the mitigation efforts here because at the very least this is horrible press like when you hear a train has a bad safety record it doesn't necessarily even register i think that the passengers themselves seem to be generally safe but just that bright line in general being the most dangerous train it doesn't really encourage you to like get on it um, no, no. you know they're nearing completion on a route from miami to orlando that it's expected to ferry families to disney world mm-hmm. so you have to make people feel safe getting on that train and know that these families are going to have a positive experience um nothing ruins a trip to disney like hitting a car on a train track yeah, on the way yeah. or something you know what i mean so um I found this report that cited some rail safety experts that agreed that three the three E's that can decrease deaths along the tracks, which include engineering, such as improved crossing gate technology, education. Um, oh, education is number two um, via like mental health agencies. And then enforcement is the third. So local police kind of deterring motorists and pedestrians from trying to beat the trains or ignore the signals or mm-hmm. um So obviously a combination approach there, but the first one being (laughs) engineering. Um, I don't know what can be done at this point. Like these routes are already in place, right? So like that's kind of the scary part is how big of a role is just the actual design of these routes and Mm -hmm. how much, because if you look at the number of of crossings with street level traffic, I can't remember um, how many there there are on the route from like... uh, I don't know, Miami to West Palm Beach, is it? Mm-hmm. Um, but it was like, you know, dramatically more than average. Yeah. So obviously that seems to be a factor here outside of all of the other things. And that's one I don't know how you fix. Well, first of all, conveniently incomplete. Best title for a memoir ever. <laughs> best. Um, and what you talk about engineering being the first E, but that was why uh, when they talk about some of the safety that they were going to add in, in the first or decided against in the first place, mm-hmm. an engineer came out with that uh, a big report saying that a lot of things were missing. And that's when they kind of came in and they're like, yeah, no, no, no we're going to add that in phase two. Yeah. Like uh, signs. We're going to put signs yeah. in later. <laughs> um, Jeff. So Brightline has been working on this aggressive safety and public awareness campaign as well as they've been asking now for federal money to update update crossings and fence in areas where people are known to trespass on the tracks. So my question is, it's a private company. 
until it's a community's problem. <laughs> you know, what, what was the second E, Anna? I forget. The second education. E is education by okay. advocacy groups. So they're talking about, I think, like the the suicide risk there, trying okay. to help mental health agencies um, sort of address those root yeah. causes. And I think but, that was kind of shot down by a lot of people. People kind of saw through what was going on there. What I think was interesting and in looking at this is a just in the composite of it being an issue with commuter or freight trains hitting cars, you know, mm-hmm. looked at some of the stats from the Federal Railway Administration. They started taking stock of this or keeping track of these statistics in 1981. So comparing 81 versus 2021, obviously back then, more rail traffic, fewer cars. Yeah. Now it's the other way around. But in the in that case, collisions were in 81, over 9,000 collisions on an annual basis. That's down to about 2,300. Oh, okay. Fatalities was over 700. It's about 230 on an annual basis. Injuries were over 3000. That's now down to about 650 or so. So there's improvement there. And Mm -hmm. the reason I bring that up is also a big part of the infrastructure bill that was passed in the fall and signed, brought in over $65 billion specifically towards passenger and commuter railway improvements. Mm. Two of the big things that were called out, number one was these specific, these crossings, basically mm-hmm. making them safer and better. And the other was accident investigation, mm-hmm. which ideally would offer more insight as to what's really going on here with these. I think we generally don't think about these types of incidents as being such a big issue until something like this makes us look at it. Oh, yeah. I've always been a big advocate of rail. I think it's underutilized in the U.S. And when you have these types of headlines, it's not going to help that, even though the safety level has improved dramatically, Mm -hmm. despite the fact that there's more cars on the road and there's going to continue to potentially be. So I think it's interesting there. Um, The other thing I I think... um, just when we talk about safety and a lot of those improvements, it's going to continue to be a big part just in making sure uh, we continue to use rail and it doesn't get sort of swept away. Mm-hmm. And we pay attention to the bad stuff without the good stuff. The other point I was going to make is I think a big part of this is the speed of the, oh, this yeah. railway. I don't think people are used to that. If they're mm-hmm. used to driving around <laughs> the gates that drop down, it's because they're used to a freight train coming through. Right. That's yeah. ex- that. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So I think as we get more rail, hopefully – with commuter and passengers, commuter passengers on board, people become more aware, leading to that educational part of those ease, understanding these are faster trains, man. You do not have time to mess with this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I'm actually glad that you brought up some of those numbers because that's very impressive. And you're right, based on some of the things that we hear, you wouldn't necessarily think that they're actually getting safer. Um, Anna, did it say how much faster uh, Brightline was going to be? I didn't, I couldn't find that number, but they were calling it, um, higher speed rail. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Because, well, that was because I saw that it was going, it averaged like 79 miles per hour. Right. Yeah. And the one number I saw was that it was going to go 80. And I was like, wait oh. a second. But I mean, technically. Yeah. I mean, it is technically fact. But I mean, I'm, yes. Okay. So I just didn't know if there were, there was a, a number as like, you know, 20 miles per hour. Because, Jeff, kind of to your point, when I, where I grew up, there was a lot of uh, freight rail that went through. And <laughs> you just knew. That if you heard if you heard the horn, you had time to get through those, right. you know, through the tracks. And I mean, even to the point where they're just like, all right, now we can go. You know, just you know, just give it a little bit. But uh things have changed and obviously uh maybe we could use a little bit of uh signage to kind of make things safer. Maybe some that should have been maybe be more at the forefront. Yeah. Yeah. You know, give people a heads up. And well, I think the big thing is saying, hey, dummy. These things are faster than you're used to. Yeah. Just stay where you are. Well, that's what I don't understand also is if you are investing in a private rail system, can't you spring for a few extra signs? <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, yeah. hey, we made a train that uh, run completely on magnetic levitation, but uh, these signs are really going to pinch us. <laughs> All right. Can't the printing. No, no. Do you believe what they're getting for these these days? <laughs> All right. <clears throat> Our most... Popular, no, second most popular story. This was our most popular story on Tuesday. World's most expensive car sold. The world has a new most expensive car, and it's a Mercedes Benz. A 1955 300 SLR Uhlenhaut Coupe was sold for $142 million at a Southby auction in Germany. The previous record was a 1962 Ferrari 250 GTO that sold for $48.4 million in 2018, nearly $100 million less. The car is named after creator and chief engineer 
Rudolf Uhlenhaut, and is one of only two prototypes in the world. The 300 SLR was the world's fastest road-going car when it was new and could reach up to 180 miles per hour. Jeff, what was cool is that Uhlenhaut kept the other prototype, and people say he once used it to travel 143 miles in under an hour. <laughs> that is just a cool thing to be associated with. That's pretty awesome. And by the way, great job on the name. Yeah. Well done. Mm-hmm. That is not an easy one. I can't say Capricorn, but I can say Udenhout. <laughs> no. <laughs> you can say Capricorn. That's the problem. I yeah. know. I know. <laughs> um, no, what a cool car, though. Just looking at this thing. I mean, oh, yeah. uh, with the wing doors, the side exhaust, and the fact that they could get out of a 3.0 liter straight eight, 180 miles an hour in 1955. The engineering mm-hmm. is incredible. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm kind of a moderate car guy, and I'm just kind of drooling over this thing. It's it's incredible. Um, it's kind of an interesting story, too, with this vehicle. The reason there were only two of them is because basically Mercedes stopped racing mm-hmm. for about 30 years um, leading into what was a really unfortunate, well, it's horrible incident, basically, that happened with this Mercedes vehicle, the previous model of it at Le Mans, 24 Hours of Le Mans, uh, 1955. Basically, there was a horrible accident. A number of bystanders were actually killed. Um, And basically, Mercedes just shut it down. It's actually, it's not a good story. (laughs) I won't get into the details, but Mm -hmm. to look into it, it was one of the worst things that ever happened in motorsports, essentially. Oh, man. So that's the reason, unfortunately, there was only two of these vehicles ever made. They didn't move forward because they basically shuttered the racing arm of their engineering side. Wow. So okay. to to see where this has sort of come full circle, and I know Anna's going to talk about this. So this vehicle basically... Incredible engineering had the brightest future shut down over a tragic event, but it's kind of going in a real cool direction now. No, I'm glad that you shared the tragic backstory because my question was, why'd they stop? You know, and it's yeah. because it is, uh, I mean, anything with a gull wing door, it's like, <laughs> I'm in. <laughs> um, Anna, what were your thoughts on the new most expensive car sold in the auction. So this will surprise you, but usually these types of transactions irritate me because I can't just like have fun. And <laughs> I all I can think about is like what $142 million would mean to like anything meaningful. Like like a zoo. Well, or like how many people in the world are like a thousand dollars from eviction at all times? Like this is a lot of money. It mm-hmm. could do a lot, right? Mm-hmm. But I will grant that the situation is unique because there's sort of an interesting thrust behind it. So Sotheby's, uh, the auction house, said that the proceeds are actually going to be donated to establish a worldwide Mercedes-Benz fund that will provide long-term educational and research scholarships in the areas of environmental science and decarbonization for young people. So there, things we need, like, right? I mean, so speaking of decarbonization, Mercedes-Benz has, like many other automakers, pledged to go... Um, electric by 2030. Uh, they have a big caveat in that. They said that they will be all electric. They will sell only electrics uh, by 2030 where market conditions allow. Mm. So, <laughs> so, so there's, I wonder if all of the automakers are going to start putting that caveat in yeah, there now. Star, mm-hmm. and, yeah. like, and then you read to the bottom, like when um, people, if people want to buy them, we will sell them. Mm-hmm. But, um, so they're trying, I feel like they're trying to have their cake and eat it too. I think some of the other, other automakers are, are doing that as well. They're saying like, well, we'll probably still keep selling internal combustion cars, but we will have a lot of electrics. Right. Um, but the company has committed 47 billion to the electrification of their lineup between now and then. So perhaps we'll have something nice to offer in the coming years to help that effort along. Mm-hmm. Casual listener, Carrie agrees with you, Anna, and says, <laughs> It is an obnoxious amount of money. Thank you, Carrie. I think we're on the same page there, as we usually are. (laughs) Uh, I found it interesting that the vehicle had been restored back in 1986 by an acclaimed technician and race preparation specialist, some guy named Tony Merrick. So it also had a little bit of history there. Um, And you're right. It is nice to see a story that normally you're just like, wow, that's a lot of sick wealth. Yeah. Like why? But then it, uh, no, a hundred million dollars should go a long way to help that foundation or what is it? It's a foundation, right? Uh, the Mercedes Benz fund. So fund. I, yeah, we don't have a lot of transparency into that fund. I don't, <laughs> I don't know what happens now, but, um, I'm, I'm yeah. hopeful. Yeah. It's all right. Let's not hold our breath. Yeah. Okay. Our most popular story now. Man escapes burning Tesla after electronic shutdown. Jamil Jutha 
was driving a 2021 Tesla Model Y in North Vancouver when, all of a sudden, the vehicle lost all power to the electronic components and shut down. Jutha couldn't get out because the doors wouldn't open and the windows wouldn't go down. Then, smoke started to roll in, right in through the air vents, and it was filling the cabin. With the doors and windows not responding, Jutha decided to force his way out by kicking through a window. He called 911 and the fire department put the fire out. A Model Y's doors are designed to open electronically at the touch of a button. In emergencies, when the car loses power, the section of the door with window control switches acts as a lever that can be lifted and open the door. Jutha said the mechanical release is not exactly instinctive in a panic situation and said that other Tesla drivers should familiarize themselves with this feature. Investigators are now looking into the cause of the fire. And Jeff, I have to, you know, a part of me immediately thinks, well, you should have known. You got to know these types of things. And then the other part of me thinks of how I buy a car. And I'm pretty sure those pages of the manual are still pretty crisp in the glove box. Yeah. Who thinks about a door handle? Yeah. I mean, as a buying feature, obviously pretty important right here. Mm -hmm. I want to come back to that. Okay. First thing I kind of wanted to talk about a little bit is, first of all, we're going to see more of this. Mm -hmm. It's just when you're looking at this much heat being generated by these batteries, looking at some figures here, a hybrid vehicle or an electric vehicle like this, a plug-in electric vehicle is more than twice as likely to catch fire in some way, shape or form than a traditional gasoline powered engine. It just, it is. That's, that's just the fact now. So when you sign on, that is a potential now, now all of them are going to be engulfed in flames like this one was. This was pretty dramatic, Mm -hmm. but that is a potential. And we don't know how well this vehicle was maintained. We don't know exactly what was going on there either. Now, as far as when it comes to being able to exit the vehicle safely, that's not Tesla's fault. Mm -hmm. Okay. That is something, again, you have to assume personal responsibility that you know how to exit the vehicle. I'm not blaming this individual either for kicking out the window. If my car started on fire, Mm -hmm. I might not be thinking all that clearly as well. But at the heart of both of these sort of subtopics is if this is a Nissan Leaf or a Volkswagen or a Chevy Bolt, are we talking about it? Maybe not on the podcast. Recover it, but yeah. Right. And that's why it's getting more attention. But I think that is something Tesla has to embrace a little bit. And I think they do for the most part. I mean, the Model Y is the most popular EV in the world, not just in the U.S. It's Mm -hmm. all over the place. So these instances, when they do happen, these situations arise, it is going to get more attention. And I think that can be a good thing. Because when you have somebody with Tesla's clout and notoriety, and they're forced for lack of a better word, to take a notice of these things and make things better and make it safer, you would think that would trickle down to everybody else. Everybody's going to want to follow the leader in making these vehicles safer and, and better to drive. Mm-hmm. Uh, Anna, who is more at fault here? Is it the driver for not knowing Tesla from not making it easier? Or is it just, you know, everyone uh, everyone's taking a piece of it? I don't know that I would blame Tesla in this case. I think at first blush, this looks like another sensational Tesla story, but I think it's just as much a story about training drivers to effectively use and understand new vehicle features. Mm -hmm. Um, We've talked about this numerous times, how the auto industry may have sort of outpaced the average consumer's knowledge base in terms of the tech innovations that they're putting out and how they're being used. Uh, For example, Tesla's autopilot um, has been panned immensely for drivers using it in ways that it's not intended for or not capable of. And in the case of this Tesla fire, the vehicle was designed with a manual open, right, Mm -hmm. integrated into that door panel that's precisely for incidents like these. Right. But this driver didn't know how to use it. And he claims that it was not intuitive. And I believe that. But there comes a point where vehicles are becoming so technologically advanced and complex that none of the features are intuitive, right? Right. Like an intuitive for whom, you know, there's just as many tech savvy young drivers that are like Gen Z and grew up with a device in their hands as there are like my parents age who, you know, there's all these complex dashboards and lights and sensors and all this stuff that these vehicles are now equipped with. We just hand over the keys and send these people on their way. Many of whom are, I'd argue most of whom perhaps Mm -hmm. like wouldn't know how to get this door open if the power were shut down because they're not looking at that, you know, but it is a very important safety feature that I do think like we need to be doing more just industry wide. It's Mm -hmm. not just on the automakers. It's not just on the consumers. It's not just on the dealers. I think everyone has to kind of agree. Maybe a regulatory agency gets involved. I don't know. I know you don't like that, Jeff, (laughs) but I do think that like we're kind of missing 
maybe like an some low hanging fruit, like maybe an easy fix for some of this stuff that doesn't have to take somebody's life. Mm-hmm. If we just pause and spend 30, 45 minutes, one hour before somebody walks out the door with that new vehicle, talking them through some of these more advanced features. I'm with you there mm-hmm. because we've talked about this before. As vehicles have gotten easier to drive with more creature comforts, people become worse drivers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're they less have. attentive. Oh, yeah. They're more focused on the technology, just basically taking care of any everything for them mm-hmm. as opposed to being able to manually execute some very basic things and be safe. So I'm with you there. But so part of me, now that, now that I'm closer to 40 than previous times buying cars, <laughs> like the whole idea of more training because uh, you're right. When you buy a car, essentially the sales guy is happy he's made a sale. He mm-hmm. throws you the keys and he's like, whatever you need, whatever, you know. But I mean, if they did offer, say they offered and not just an hour, maybe it was like uh, you could take like a four hour class or some sort of series of online training. Mm-hmm. A, would you do it? You know, because it sounds like something that's sounds great. Mm-hmm. And then nobody really takes advantage of it because I'd like to think I would. Yeah. But I still don't understand half the features on our car. That we bought four years ago. But but at, at some point, there's going to be a situation where it's going to be the automakers driving this and saying, like, sign this release then. Yeah. Oh, sign yeah, this yeah. waiver that, that absolves it, yeah. us from any responsibility if you decline to take this class or whatever. You no, know? you're right. I think that I think that that would be a really best case scenario, because, I mean, even if it is just like uh, a simple online course that are that takes you through the features, almost like an online version of the um, of the book you know, uh, of the manual. Mm-hmm. I mean, that there could be a lot of positive benefit to that. You know, it's interesting you bring that up because actually when we just bought our new vehicle in the fall, the salesperson spent about a half an hour with us going through every single button. Yeah. So mm-hmm. it's, I think it is a, right now it's probably more of a personal salesperson thing, sure. yeah. but some of them are doing the right stuff. So. Yeah. <laughs> our sales guy wasn't nearly as <laughs> Just like, what is the EV button? Well, you push it and it turns green and then EV. What? Like, and then I called him and he's like, I'm like, it doesn't work. Actually, it makes it kind of like run weird. Well, then don't push the button. Like, wow. He has no idea. Yeah. You have bad luck. Thanks, Stefan. Suppliers, though. No. Like, everything, though. I mean, maybe I'm just too demanding of a customer. I don't think so. Maybe you're just too shrill. (laughs) Um, The one, one thing when I saw the story is that every time... I feel like I'm getting closer to being comfortable buying an EV. Then the story hits and I'm like, oh, maybe not. Maybe a couple more years. So I actually need to correct myself, though. I was looking at those stats. Mm -hmm. The hybrid electric vehicles are more likely to cause fire. The battery electric ones are much, much less, actually. Oh, okay. Thank you, Jeff, um, for clarifying. typical gasoline-powered engine. So I was actually, I was wrong there. So one like Tesla here, actually, it's much safer from a fire perspective. Than like the vehicles we drive every day. It's because that battery is combined with the fuel. Why? Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. That's why the yeah the hybrid electrics mm-hmm. those are the most combustible. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever I, you want to say. I think there's a lot of yeah you he- hear a lot of things about what I'm driving about. <laughs> oh, those. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wait, like what you have. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I need to take the class. <laughs> You hear a lot of these stories about these batteries that the fire departments have a really hard time putting out because they're so powerful. And, you know, that's, I think, where people get this impression that electrics, pure electrics are not safe. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, to your point, I mean, gasoline combustion engines start on fire all the time. Nobody's even reporting on that. So, But they also have, you know, 100 years putting those out. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Just, uh, you know, with new technology, we need just need, need to make sure we know how to use know what we're doing yeah all right well before we move into in case you missed it and i list my car on facebook marketplace (laughs) we have a word from our sponsor oil eaters household cleaners industrial cleaners and industrial equipment are specifically designed to replace dangerous solvents and are used throughout the world our safe water-based formula dissolves grease and grime for almost any surface and leaves a fresh, non-chemical scent. Our ultra-concentrated formulas are perfect for light, medium, or heavy cleaning and can be used on shop floors, in parts washers, to clean equipment, and more. VOC compliant, Oil Eater will do an excellent job in a multitude of applications, safely and cost-effectively, while reducing your chemical usage. Safe for the user, safe for the surfaces being cleaned, and safe for the environment. For more information, visit oilleader.com or call 800-528-0334. All right, and we're back. And just a reminder that if you want that free sample of Oil Eater, you can click the link below. Let's move on to In Case You Missed It, the stories that, you know, maybe weren't as popular on the website, but 
still stand to make a big impact on the industry going forward. I'm going to go first this week. It is about a tiny little robot crab. A robot crab that is the smallest ever remote-controlled walking robot. Northwestern University engineers have created this walking tiny crab robot, and it's the smallest thing ever made. It's a tiny crab, and their words, they call it adorable. But, I mean, I think that's a reach. It kind of looks like a mechatronic tick. <laughs> <laughs> looks like an angry metal tick. doesn't give a lot of warm, fuzzy yeah, feelings. Yeah, no one's no. calling it a robot tick. Nobody no. wants that. But maybe it's got a pleasant disposition. Yeah, can we call it a robot crab? What, this tiny little robot tick? No. Yeah. So it's half a millimeter wide, and it can bend, Whoa. twist, crawl, walk, turn, and even jump. Now, the work is experimental, but the team thinks it could lead to these micro-sized robots or nanobots one day performing, well, just micro-robots, one day performing practical tasks inside tightly confined spaces, like building or even fixing small machines or even clearing clogged arteries or eliminating tumors. It's smaller than a flea and moves via shape memory alloy. So essentially, right now, they're steering it with a laser. They make it hot, moves, and, uh, you know, in terms of expanding and contracting. And it's also made using uh, a manufacturing method that's inspired by how they make pop-up books. So uh, basically, hmm. they manufacture it flat. They uh, stick something to it, and then it kind of pops up. Wow. Yeah, it's really cool. Now, the researchers have also developed millimeter-sized robots that resemble inchworms, crickets, and beetles. And I, you know, guys know that I'm a sucker for futuristic technology especially when it comes to the potential that it has for medical and both industrial in this case. <laughs> but sometimes it just makes you, it's unsettling. And they show this like <laughs> mm-hmm. tiny little mechatronic tick crawling on the side of a penny. Oh. And it just gives you the heebie-jeebies. Like, uh, you know, just hold on a second. Like the, I can just see the doctor like pouring some out yeah. on like your palm and then they slowly crawl into you. And you're like, what's it doing? Curing cancer. Okay. Still, I don't like it. Um, but more like more work like this, I find it very fascinating. And I also find it interesting how it could be used for like, um, preventative and, uh, predictive maintenance operations in the future, just because we talk about how 3d printing and new manufacturing technologies are going to lead to things that were otherwise unmanufacturable. Mm -hmm. And we're going to need new ways of performing maintenance on stuff that might not be accessible. And maybe it'll be a tiny little adorable robot crab. Yeah, it'll be a tick maintenance yeah, person. The tick. I think this is cool. I mean, that was actually the first place I went. You mentioned the medical stuff, which oh. because it wasn't positioned directly as like intravenous type uh, injectable type of thing here, I guess where I first thought was just, yeah, being able to get into some of those really tight spots and figure out what's wrong. Mm-hmm. And if it potentially down the line can actually do some sort of repair, I mean, just imagine what that does for uptime improvement yeah. um, and really in anything. I mean, throw it, in your, throw it in our vacuum cleaner over here. See if you can yeah. figure out what's going right. on. Get it to dust up this mercury dust. <laughs> <laughs> so the applications could really be, I mean, literally, I mean, pretty much anything you can think of. Yeah, no, I think you see that they're steering it with a laser and then you kind of discount it because it's like, okay, not that practical. But it's stuff, it's advancements like this that, as you like to say, it's the thing that leads to the thing. Um, all right. We have a... Comment from loyal listener Seth. He says, in these scenarios, if a person refuses to take a safety course, oh, we must be talking about the uh, the car. In these scenarios, if a person refuses to take a safety course to work the vehicle properly and someone else is injured, ooh, should they be held liable? I mean, I feel like that's ooh. all potential outcomes of this. Like at some point, if you're like acknowledging that this is a responsibility of you, the driver to either take or not take the course, it absolves the automaker. It might make that person liable. I don't know. I like the accountability. I agree. Mm -hmm. And Seth says this is his version of keeping it positive. (laughs) So, uh, good work, Seth. Yep. Positivity trading for Seth. All right. (laughs) Jeff, what is your, in case you missed it this week? So, um, also, kind of going along the safety route, that's kind of been a theme for a lot of the stories here today. Mm-hmm. I thought this one was pretty cool. It's about some silicon wristbands that are tracking firefighters' exposure to harmful chemicals. So, according to this article, firefighters have a 9% higher risk of being diagnosed with cancer and a 14% chance of not surviving oh, once mm-hmm. they are what? diagnosed. And that's according to OSHA. And basically, it's because they are exposed to these mm-hmm. things more frequently when they're going into 
dangerous environments. Wow. So some uni- some researchers at the University of or Duke University, excuse me, have basically developed these silicone wristbands. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it, it seems like it's very similar to something you wear to raise awareness, or <laughs> even the stuff you wear when you go into you know an amusement park or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. And it allow what it does is it turns different colors depending on what the firefighters were exposed to, oh. so they can identify some of the different things that they're being in contact with. With the goal of, number one, if they need to treat it more aggressively or to do something to prevent any type of negative impact from the exposure, but also in developing better protective gear long term yeah. for the firefighters so they can reduce their exposure. We've talked so much about these. Everybody who's on the front line during the pandemic, firefighters obviously do more than just fight fires. They're they're out in the community as well. Um, they do a lot of things just from a public service and a public safety perspective. So anything we can do to help these guys be safer and doing an incredibly dangerous job just seems like a huge <clears throat> win, especially when it's something that's so non-invasive or mm-hmm. like very doesn't get in the way of all the other stuff they have to wear. You can do it with a simple wristband and just see what kind of colors is changing and, and know what you're wearing in touch with. So. No, there's still plenty of good uses for analog tech. Yeah. Right. Um, Anna, what were your thoughts on uh, either the wristband or the tiny robot crab? <laughs> uh, tiny robot crab pass. Uh, <laughs> the, the wristband is cool. I'm curious to know like what they can do if they know what you've been exposed to in terms of like helping to mitigate the effects of that after the fact. However, the PPE part is really interesting to me. That they can, I mean, yeah, it would be like interesting to know, like, okay, if you're breathing in this stuff, like, how is it getting to you, you know, mm-hmm. through your mask and what, you know. So I know from my military experience, when you are exposed to certain chemicals, mm-hmm. there is a an antibiotic that you can take to help minimize the impact for, that it will have on your body. Mm-hmm. So I would, I would hope there's probably something similar here that they can, they can possibly use to prevent it from growing. Becoming a cancerous sure. yeah, well, I mean, yeah. issue. I mean, beyond firefighters, like this sounds like a product that you could market to pretty much anybody and they'd have interest yeah. um, in something similar. For sure. All right. Anna, what is your in case you missed it this week? All right. Um, my in case you missed it is here is how much the top paid CEOs made in 2021. Mm. Always a contentious story mm-hmm. because we get a lot of feedback, I think, from both sides of the coin. People saying like executives uh, work hard and deserve to earn more because they take on a lot of risk and um, et cetera. They drive the train, profitability that trickles down. Then there's a lot of people on the other side that say, hey, come on. (laughs) (laughs) This is a little out of hand. That's a little gross. Is that the exact verb, verbiage? Buddy. Come on, man. Yeah. We need to talk about this. Uh, So we covered the highest paid male and female CEOs in the S&P 500 index for 2021 as calculated by the Associated Press and Equilar, which is an executive data firm. The study covered 340 executives at S&P 500 companies who have served at least two full consecutive fiscal years at their respective companies. The median salary was $14.5 million, mm. which was up 17% from the year prior. This is a lot. Yeah. Um, The highest paid executive on the list earns 2,897 times what a typical worker at his company does. He also makes 10 times more than the top paid female executive. Yeah, that's crazy. (laughs) Sorry. Uh, No, I just. David's the guy. Hey, no, I was. uh, Sidebar, guys. So I was scrolling back and forth and I'm just like, oh, I wonder how much uh, number one male makes compared to the number one. Oh, my God. It's not even 10 percent. It's cute. Yeah. Yeah. So um, can you guess who the top paid uh, CEO without looking? I spoiled it. Yeah, you can. Okay. Yeah. So it it was uh, Peter Kern, who is CEO of Expedia Group, which owns not just Expedia, but basically every other marketplace for travel bookings, which I didn't realize. Hmm. Like they own Orbitz, Travelocity. Verbo, Hotels.com, Hotwire, Trivago, all owned by the same company. Oh, good. Yeah. It's good to have a competitive and diverse marketplace. Right, right. Nobody noticed that was happening. Anyway. Um, Isn't but that a monopoly? <laughs> it sounds like it, right? Uh, is well, kayak? That's kayak is still available. Yeah, right. So all the right. kayak's yeah. holding it down on the other side. Yeah. So, uh, so he, yeah. So he's the CEO of this group that serves an industry that basically collapsed during the pandemic. Um, it seems like a pretty bullish statement to me to pay your CEO that much. Um, it's uh, 
296.2 million. Yeah. Per year. But uh, not 300. Two years in on the job so far. When there are a lot of variables working against every market right now, not least of which the travel industry. Yeah, that's so a good point. I don't understand how we justify this kind of thing. Rant over. I'll let you guys take it from here. Maybe, I think you know where I stand. Maybe he used half of that to buy the Mercedes, and then that money is going to go to a fund, yeah. which will help people. Well, and the funny part Triple too. Down. Yeah, the funny part too is people are always like. But it's not just cash. It's also, you know, stock options and stuff like, well, that's also money, though. Like, it's not it's not like a worthless piece of paper. I mean, like he could cash that out whenever and have that money. I mean, I don't know. It's not like it's like a weird variable to be like, that's a good qualifier. Like, it makes sense now. Like, well, it's not all cash. It's only like uh, I don't know how much in cash. I won't guess. But like, you know, it's a lot in cash. Yeah. And it's a lot in stock. It's a lot, a lot. So a couple of things. The top female CEOs, if you add them all together, barely eclipse, um, barely eclipse number five on the list for men. Um, One thing I will credit uh, our industry, the manufacturing industry, is that four out of the five top paid CEOs are in the manufacturing industry or a related industry. Uh, Lisa Su, the CEO of Advanced Micro Devices, is number one. Mary Barra, GM, number two. Uh, Phoebe Novakovic at General Dynamics, number three. Number four is Adina Friedman at NASDAQ. But number five is Kathy Warden at Northrop Grumman. So I see a little bit of positive there, that there's at least some advancement for women in our industry. Not agree. The disparity is concerning, mm-hmm. obviously. Um, these lists never bother me. Because these people do not pick what they're getting paid. The market determines it. Yeah. Okay. The if market some, determines. The market determines this. If they weren't being paid this by Expedia, somebody else is going to pay them. Mm-hmm. So no one else is paying this amount. Th- that's their fault. Whose fault is that? Well, I, it's the company's fault. I, I'm not like mad at this guy. I just I do think that the companies here are like setting a weird precedent to continue to outpay someone by thousands and thousands of times what a typical worker at that company makes. Yes. The disparity is troubling. So I'm not maybe saying it's I wanna... on the board. It's on the, I don't know who but it's on. I'm not like going to punch this guy out. Peter Kern, CEO of Expedia group. Ooh, she's coming out throwing hands. I said, I'm not going to do that. Yeah, No. Um, <laughs> but you know, we, uh, with the previous story, we talk about morale and sometimes, I mean, I have to imagine, I get it. You understand that the leader is at the top and without them, the company might not run. And as a result, you don't have a job, but sometimes you look at that disparity and uh, you just got to be like, all oh, right, I know that I'm not worth 200, nearly $300 million, but I feel like I should be closer to 30,000 a year. Like closer you know? to a million dollars a day. <laughs> it seems high to me for going to work. I don't know just seems high it's because we're not motivated enough anna we're not we're not bootstrappers that's true i gotta work harder yep um no it's uh i think there are a lot of interesting points with a list like this and um you know thanks for bringing it up (laughs) it really seems to have browsed together yeah, right. Yeah. We are um, all in agreement then. Okay, moving on. I mean, we can all agree. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, we can debate it as much as you want. Again, I just, I have no problem with what any of these people get paid. Yeah. I, but, you could, but you could admit that $300 million a year is a lot. <laughs> you could admit yes. that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, just like. You did hear the million part. Yeah, okay. right. Yeah. I mean, great for him. That's awesome. Yeah, actually, Peter. I don't want his job. If you need friends. No. I would like to come on one of your yachts. I mean, she's got to have many. No, I don't know. Maybe he's not a boat guy. All right. <clears throat> well, let's move on to our final thoughts, and none of which hopefully have to do with CEO compensation. Um, Anna, are you ready for a final thought? If not, I can go first. Yeah, I am. Um, okay. So my seven-year-old came into the office this morning for a few minutes. Um, she had the day off school today. <clears throat> and uh, when we asked her to stay and put in a hard day's work, she said that she couldn't because she was not a very good speller that she could only spell sight words because she's she's learning to read. Oh, right on. And um and then we all collectively realized that we are also not good spellers, but like we didn't notice it happening because I think Microsoft Word and everything and autocorrect mm-hmm. like sort yeah. of took away our reason to even need to know how to spell. So 
I don't know why I'm admitting this all to you. I guess because like be gentle when you see a mistake on the website and send us <laughs> yeah. an email or write a comment. It's not our fault. I didn't ask for the software to correct me every time. And now like my brain is just lazy and doesn't know how to spell anymore. But that's just what happened. Yes. Just please continue to email them to us. Just, you know. Tone's a little hot sometimes. Yeah, just nicely, please. Um, I will say that we were, it's not that we weren't good at spelling. We were previously actually likely great spellers in school. And then as yeah. these more tools, as these tools became available, I was like, I mean, why? Why do I need yeah. to learn how to spell? It will tell me how to spell Cincinnati at some point. I just need to get to entropy and then I'm good. <laughs> but I've noticed that is when I'm using a search engine, how bad my spelling is now. Oh, yeah. Um. Spelling is a skill, not a sign of of intelligence. We don't even know who said that because the people trying to spell out a lot of misspellings on the yeah. uh, on the prompter. <laughs> well, let's just say they're trying. Yeah. Um, so now let's. Uh, my final thought this week was I. Uh, you know, we talked. We've talked about Chuck in Burlington or Chuck mm-hmm. in B Town a couple of times. He's yeah. answered some things correctly, and uh, he did reach out. And it turns out. That uh, while we don't know each other, we actually had a mutual connection, and uh, his name's Bob Edgington. He was my he was my uh, coach of mine for a number of sports. He actually taught my wife at a different school, um, and I just wanted to say, Chuck, thanks a lot for reaching out. That's awesome. You know, he was a great coach. He's a great man, and according to Chuck, he's a great friend, which is cool. He says he's helped him like roof his house. Nice. So Edge is still at it, um, and so and now we need to. Uh, Chuck says he's. Uh, next in line for a hat. And if we get Chuck a hat, I say we got to send Edge a shirt. Yeah, hook him up. I thought he was taken care of already because he's a big time responder to the trivia stuff. So, yeah. So, Chuck, send us your info. Give us, I'm pretty sure that Edge is still in Excel, but let me know if you know. Um, nah, he's a large. But uh, one thing I liked about Edge when uh, whenever we would go and uh, whenever we were ready for a game or a match, you know, he would get off the bus. And then he would dramatically walk back onto the bus and put his arms over the first seat. And he'd go, you guys are going into a dog fight out there. <laughs> he's just like, you got to scrap. You got And it was just like, it would just get me so keyed up. Like even thinking about it when Chuck emailed me, I'm like going into a dog fight. Like, <laughs> and he would just get you going. And then, you know, you come firing off that bus and it's like, let's get it after the Pledge of Allegiance and all the songs and the warm-ups. And then in like 45 minutes to an hour and a half, we're getting into that dog fight. But uh, Chuck, uh, send my best to Edge. And uh, thanks for reaching out. Uh, what else? Oh, hold on. On CEOs. Should we go on CEOs one more time? We have a comment. We have a comment from Carrie. The extra money could go to employees during a labor shortage. Jeff says no. What extra money? That's just, an, that's just a, you know what? We're just going to leave it on the table. Um... Jeff, <laughs> what's your final thought? Oh, hard segue. <laughs> um, going into a dogfight. I feel like with that comment from Carrie, it means I'm going home into a dogfight. Like, <laughs> For what I said. Yeah, right? Where does <laughs> Jeff could, get off? How could you let him do that? Yeah, 300 million gross. Because <laughs> <laughs> you actually allow my children into your home. You trust them. It's not me. Well, I mean, but they fight with me about this stuff too. So it's, it's all good. That's what I was going to say. I was going to be like, I think they're on our side. They would be. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> um, so I spent a couple of days last weekend up in Eagle River, Wisconsin. Yes. Mm-hmm. Eagle River is the best. We all love. And one of the things that got me this time, you know, I enjoy fishing and all that kind of stuff, <laughs> but just getting out there and sitting on the boat and just appreciating complete quiet. Oh, Have yeah. you ever, no. like, just like, like that just hits you all of a sudden, like, wow. Yeah, it is just really. This is the most peaceful surrounding I've been in in like months. It's it's incredible. I'm gonna say yes in the summer and spring when there's nature around, like when there are leaves to rustle. But uh, when you're in that complete silence of nature during the winter, you start understanding The Shining a lot more (laughs) because it's just like it's absolutely silent. And you're like, oh no, I'm only left with my thoughts, and it's getting weird real fast. So, but no, I completely agree. Like just. Well, now that there's birds and lapping waves of water, if you yeah. have a chance, it was just very helpful. Yeah, I don't know. It was great. No, cleanse the soul. Sounds yeah. nice. Sounds, sounds amazing. For. Yeah. Um, trivia. So last week, the question was, which piece of your um, protective gear do you actually decontaminate twice? Once when you're putting it on and then when you're all done. Mm-hmm. We had some different guesses. Again, no correct answers this week, but the yeah. answer is gloves. No you one do got your gloves right, huh? twice. 
What were people saying? Were they with me on the mask? Yes. Yeah. That was the most popular response. Mm, okay. A lot of people saying the mask. So we're going to shift gears a little bit. The mm. trivia this year, this this year, okay. this week. We run a lot, not a lot, but every once in a while, we run stories that have celebrities involved in them and the headline. They're related to the story in some way, shape, or form. So I'm going to list a couple of celebrities here. I want to know which one you think drew the most page views. Mm-hmm. So these celebrities, the story they were attached to, which one got the most traffic? We've got Brad Pitt, mm-hmm. Britney Spears, Jay-Z, Anton Yelchin, guy from Star Trek, RIP, and Aaron Rodgers. So again, those choices, Brad Pitt, Britney Spears, Jay-Z, Anton Yelchin, and Aaron Rodgers were all involved in stories we've run over the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. Which one of those stories or which one of these celebrity stories got the most attention, page views, traffic, that type oh, of thing? We should, due to this informal survey, we should write it up as an article and then we can list them all in the headline. Just like... You're supposed to do that when we're done. Oh, I talk about doing that. Oh, okay. 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 Uh, we'll it, we'll does it ruin it for me to ask you to clarify what we ran a yes, story about? Oh, yes, okay. mm-hmm. Aaron Rodgers. So just was on Mike. the base of it, those are your five celebrities. Which one got the most page views? Uh, we'll put together a nice little t-shirt headgear package. Headgear? Nice. Hat. <clears throat> Need to get that today manufacturing koozie going for the summer. Mm-hmm. All right. Well. Before we get out of here, please make sure to like, share, and subscribe to the podcast. You can also help us out a lot by giving the podcast a positive review on whatever platform you use. If you want to email the podcast, you can reach any of us at Jeff, David, or Anna at IN.com with email the podcast in the subject line. And finally, make sure to subscribe to our newsletters. Make sure you get the podcast to your inbox first. All right. Oh, and subscribe to us on YouTube so you get that notification as to when we go live. All right. For Jeff and Anna, I'm David Manti. This is the Today in Manufacturing podcast. We'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Today in Manufacturing podcast.